Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Gentlemen. Hello. How are you, buddy? Good, thanks, mate. How's it going? Yeah, very well. And how are you, Andreas? Yeah, very well, very well. Good afternoon, gents. Yes, nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks for joining us at short notice. We had a bit my of a pleasure. scramble this week. It's the highlight of my week in, in COVID. Yeah, I'm <laughs> really looking forward to the most exciting thing that's happened to me all week. Uh, Nick, I love your beard, mate. You look like you're about to audition for Deadliest Catch on TV. Mate, I've actually not had a haircut for about four months. It is wild stuff, man. Yeah. <laughs> I need a home job. That's some cool artwork you've got in the background there, Andreas. What's what's the... Uh, what's the oh, it's a super talented artist from WA called Rena Freiburg that we came right. across about three years ago at Sydney Contemporary, which is a, a sort of big exhibition that happens. Yep. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's great to be able to support local artists. She's superb and uh, fell in love with this piece and uh, got it. So it's the background to most of my meetings, actually. Mm. Fantastic. Cool. It had mixed responses. I must admit, it's a it's a sort of Vegemite moment. It's a love or hate. <laughs> That's what you want out of art, right? The, the worst thing about art is indifference. You want you want to elicit a positive or a negative response. Oh, look, hundred percent. It's going to be. It's going to evoke something. Exactly. Andreas, as a British man, I can't believe you used Vegemite instead of Marmite for that Did analogy. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm making a big effort to fit into my new environment. <laughs> but yes, you know, it it, it hurts. That hurts. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, do you guys know each other, Nick and Andreas? Have you met them? No, no, no. Nice to meet you. Oh, welcome. You too. Medical directors of Artisan is Andreas, and medical director of Silk Clinics is Nick. So, Jake, I'm actually medical advisor. Beg your pardon, medical so, advisor. Yeah. So we wouldn't want to step on Jenny's toes. Do you know Jenny Shanahan? Uh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, People I do. Know, so I didn't realize. Well. Yeah, they work together. So what's the difference between medical advisor and medical director? Does that mean you get to make decisions that no one can blame you if they go wrong? Because <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that I guess she's like above me. So so the medical director, I would I, I would feedback to her. So right. It's the degree of responsibility. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, Nick, I obviously know you from university, which is yep. kind of crazy how many how many years ago that was. And by the way, we were five-a-side football champions of Sydney. That's right. So I've just got to get that in just in case <laughs> anyone didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Andreas, I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, but you're, you're based up, uh, well, you're in Balmain, is that right? Have I got that wrong? Uh, yes. Clinically, I'm based both in Mossman and Balmain. And uh, I also popped down to Canberra. We've got three clinics in Canberra and I go to the Woden Clinic a couple of days a month. Right. Okay, fair oh, enough. I've got a clinic in Woden too. There you go. Well, rivals. No. <laughs> <laughs> the industry is big enough for everyone. There shouldn't course. be no rivals. Yeah. Should be no rivals. So what's been happening with you guys during COVID? It seems like it's the way we intro every conversation because it's just this all-encompassing issue that's affecting all of us. So what have you guys been doing in your in your downtime? How are you coping with the uh, with the monotony of it all? Or maybe you still got lots of work to do? 
Oh, look, it's, I mean, it's, it's tough for everyone, isn't it? And uh, I think, look, for us, it's a matter of trying to be as disciplined as we can, trying to recalibrate into a slightly different routine um, and, you know, do a bit of exercise, try and be healthy, keep in touch with friends and family, look after each other. You know, it's a, it's a matter of finding the silver linings and, and try and get the best out of the situation that we have, knowing that there are better times ahead, you know? Yeah, absolutely. What about you, Nick? How are you coping? Yeah, What's your um, soccer? Look, yeah, no, no soccer, <laughs> unfortunately. It's a team sport. But um, I've been pretty lucky, to be honest, because I'm a GP in terms of being able to still to work. So before COVID, I was probably doing about 20% of GP and the rest in aesthetics. But now I'm back and I've picked up a couple of extra shifts. So I'm actually doing a bit of vaccination. And then I continue just to do my skin clinic because I do a lot of uh, skin cancer medicine, like a full day of that. And then I just do another half day. So it's given me a lot of extra time to play golf. Actually, I played this morning and I'm playing three times this week, which is the absolute dream. Um, still rubbish at it, but, <laughs> but loving it. <laughs> and the weather's been great. So like Andrea said, you've got to just take the positives, know that when we get back, we're going to hit the ground running and probably be the busiest any of us ever have been. So, you know, when we get two weeks deep into being back to work, we're going to be like, geez. (laughs) So yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. Um, yeah. It might be worth just uh, telling our listeners who are you know based all over the place a little bit more about you know who you represent or, or about your own personal sort of businesses. So maybe we'll start with Andreas. You know, you're, you're the medical director of Artisan Clinics. Yeah. Who are they, and, and what is your role with them? So uh, the Artisan Aesthetics Group is now in its third year. Uh, we've got a collection of twenty clinics based in Queensland, uh, New South Wales, ACT, and Victoria. Um, And I joined them pretty early on in their journey. Um, When we moved across from the UK to Sydney and made the decision to emigrate about four years ago, I decided at that point that I really wanted to focus exclusively on the non-surgical side of uh, facial aesthetics. I had done a lot of injectables as part of my private practice in plastic surgery back in London. And I really loved the non-surgical side of things because I found myself being able to use my surgical brain and experience in a non-surgical way. And I think when you've been operating on uh, on the face for many, many years, you sort of evolve an appreciation of not just the anatomy, but also how tissues behave and how they feel. And that's super helpful in the non-surgical side of things. So once I decided that I really wanted to focus on that, for me, it was really important to align myself with an organization, a group that uh, felt the same as I did and had the same ethos and the same priorities. And so when I came across our CEO, Maxine Horn, for the first time, it became very clear that we're both uh, very much aligned in, in what we believe is important. So client center of everything, Uh, treat your team members as well as possible and uh, be the best in class mentality. That's how I ran things in London. So it was music to my ears uh, that I found this organization that is very much aligned. So it's a bit of a no-brainer and uh, haven't really looked back since. Um, And uh, I'm delighted to be part of the evolution of of the brand. Yeah. And before we get to, get to you, Nick, just one more question, Andre. So, you know, Artisan bought, over, bought an existing 
chain of clinics and rebranded them as artisan. Was it probably about what was it three or four years ago now? Yes, I think like- it was three years ago. It was started with Clear Complexions, yes, with an acquisition that uh, started off the, the beginnings of, of artisan. And then we have acquired clinics uh, that uh, suited our brand uh, yeah. and continue to do so. And what were the, I guess, the biggest challenges from your perspective as someone in a medical director role, sort of, I guess, shepherding that transition? You know, what, what were the things that sort of you had to sort of oversee and, you know, just, just some insights? Sure. Look, I think there are, there are commercial and there are clinical uh, priorities and being able to align those is super important. So from my point of view, it's really important to provide that clinical insight. Uh, the company is very good at uh, at, at being able to identify commercial and profitable organizations. And then my input really is to ensure that we have clinical expertise that match the commercial expertise that Artisan have. So that's that's really my biggest contribution to uh, align the clinical priorities to the commercial priorities and, and give an insight into the clinical quality, not just the commercial quality of any potential clinic that we'll be uh, acquiring. Yeah. And, and that's always a challenge, right? Is, is sort of balancing off the commercial and the medical side of things, because at the end of the day, it's still a medical procedure or medical procedures that are sure, being absolutely. Offered. But then you've also got the commercial realities of running a business, which is yeah. making sure there's enough money coming in for staff and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, it's always that fine balancing act. So yeah, I'll be interested to ask you some more questions on that as we sort of progress through the chat, but um, maybe Nick, you can tell us all about yourself and uh, yeah, just take it sure. away. So, um, like Jake mentioned earlier on, so I was a Manchester graduate and I stuck around in Manchester <laughs> after I qualified and went on to do a GP training. And I actually went to, I did my first Botox and fillers weekend course with cosmetic. Um, what's the doctor that you went to as well? Oh, cosmetic Adrian. courses, Adrian Richards. Yeah, so I did oh, my yeah. first weekend course maybe in 2000, and I want to say 2011, 2012. Then I didn't get here till probably 2014, I think just before you. And I'd just sort of been dabbling in, in aesthetics in Manchester. And then once I got here, I, I went full-time into GP with a bit of aesthetics on the side. And then gradually that that got more and more traction. And then I joined a clinic called Dolce Vita Skin in Erna, where we've been open for about four years. And as I said now, so I'm probably about 20% skin cancer than the rest in aesthetics. I have been a KOL for Tioxin for a little while now. So a key opinion leader for the brand. And I did a little bit of teaching for Derma Medical and mainly in Sydney. And then my other role is, as I said before, medical advisor to the Silk Laser Clinics. So a little bit of background about Silk. We have 63 clinics across Australia. About 20 of them are owned by the nurse injectors themselves. And that's something that, you know, Silk tries to promote to get the nurses to own their own clinics. And I don't know if you guys have heard, but recently we acquired Australian Skin Clinics. Mm -hmm. So... Now there's a total of 116 clinics. So I think over the next year, my job's going to, you know, be busy significantly. <laughs> and with, you know, all, all that comes with opening or acquiring new clinics and, and implementing the policies and procedures that we've got at Silk and carrying that across. So it's going to be an exciting time for, for Silk, really. And it's growing more and more. And it's just a great, great company to work 
for from Martin at the top to all the guys that filter down from that and even the nurses themselves they're all just brilliant people to work with how much of your time is dedicated to doing that role versus you know injecting and, and GP because it's not you know it's not a small job it, it could be all in all consuming and I know you're working with Jane obviously but so look to be honest at the moment it, it's probably a couple of hours a week right as, as my role but I think now that we've got so many other clinics and just with the growth in such a short period of time that it's been hinted at that that's going to increase more and more which is great though because like I do enjoy it um, and, and as I said like the people that I work with are great yeah actually it's interesting that well it, it's relevant now that you know in a time of COVID and me and Andreas and David to an extent are sort of sitting at home twiddling our thumbs you've got different things that you can still be getting on with like your GP work but have you have you also been having to do things behind the scenes with Silk to get ready for you know the reopening um, whenever that is I was actually going to say like COVID hasn't particularly affected Silk or not in a great way like obviously the the nurses that are in New South Wales and there's a couple of clinics in the ACT obviously they're not at work but what I've heard is that they've like myself because they're nurses they've pivoted away to doing more hospital work or COVID vaccines but the other clinics in the other states they're they're absolutely flying and then in fact they're busier than they were prior so Mm. I don't know whether that's because they're thinking it's coming and (laughs) when it gets into the state as we all know Delta takes over so people potentially rush in to get their cosmetic injectables we don't really know but the other clinics are doing really really well and they're super busy yeah, I guess the same question for you, Andreas. Like, what what has your role been as medical director when I'm guessing what ninety or hundred percent of your clinics are closed? Yeah, look, I think uh, each state has its own regulations and it has been affected in different ways, and so we adapt to make sure that we are in sync with that. So yes, Queensland is fully open for business and uh, doing very well, uh, but obviously our clinics in the other states that uh, are under lockdown are not operational. So um, look, for us, when it came to dealing with COVID first time around, uh, we just stayed true to what is absolutely essential and at core of our business, which is the safety and well-being of our uh, of our clients and of our team. And so uh, we were guided always by the state regulations. Uh, our approach was always evidence-based um, and we communicated what we were doing, why and how to our clients uh, to instill confidence in them that we are doing everything that we can do to navigate this environment. And I think as we evolve out of this lockdown, we are learning how to coexist with this. And so we've got to be absolutely robust in our processes to make sure that we maintain the safety and well-being of our clients and of our, our staff members. And we're very lucky to be supported by uh, a lot of people that work in arts and behind the scenes. And these are incredibly capable people with a very can-do attitude. And I'm very grateful to the support that we have as clinicians uh, from the, the brand uh, because it just makes things happen. And we're able, therefore, to have these processes that we can roll out. Uh, and we've learned a lot from the first coming out of the first lockdown and we're putting that experience into preparing to come out of the uh, second lockdown. Yeah. Well, that's actually a good point, Andre. So what were the, I guess, the big takeaways or the learn that, you know, well, not test and learn, but learns from the first COVID, um, coming back from the first COVID lockdown. So what are the things that you noticed in terms of 
changes or things that you needed to implement to be better prepared for the for the next time around? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, look, for us, it was really important to uh, always reassure the, our clients that we are on top of the situation and that we have their well-being uh, at the forefront. So having these robust processes, it, which is now a well-oiled machine in our organization, the QR code check-ins, the uh, temperature checks, the hand sanitizing masks, giving enough time to disinfect, to ask for symptoms and signs, to check on their vaccination status coming out of this lockdown, which, of course, affects the dermophilo and threads and things like that. So uh, we've learned that it's it's super important to stay absolutely focused on what is important, which is following the uh, evidence-based guidelines and having processes in place that will allow you to be productive and efficient and effective whilst also very safe at the same time. Yeah. Did, did you have any sort of different um, things that you guys implemented with Silk or anything extra that you know you're going to do nick um i think we always take i sound like gladys but take the health advice <laughs> no, good think, morning everybody <laughs> yeah. you're, a bit, you're a bit better looking nick sorry <laughs> <laughs> you know i think well with any luck we'll get some guidance from new south wales about how that would look but certainly at that silk like andrea said you know the, the safety of the staff and also the patients is paramount so we've got all, all of what Andrea said in place. Hmm. You know, I, I think it's different this time, though. It's it feels very different because you know the last time, like we're we're what week eleven. So the last time I think we were closed for maybe nine or ten weeks, yeah. and you could see the peak in the cases, and then the cases would tail off. Whereas this this time it's living with COVID, isn't it? So yeah. I feel that when we when we do open up, it, it is going to be it's going to be very different. I feel that people are going to be quite apprehensive. Well, look, I think it's 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 important to instill confidence. Uh, I, what I found is that we we're in the business of building relationships with our clients, and I think that they they have confidence and trust in us, and I think that's absolutely key in empowering them to not be as concerned in a field that there's a lot of conflicting information. So confidence in a brand is really important so that they feel that they're well looked after. Yeah. And I think that's a really pertinent point, Andreas. I think that, you know, speaking from my own experience, you know, being locked up for for three months, mm. you know, not working, you know, you sort of lose your sense of self and your sense of purpose a little bit. People, you know, looking at themselves in the time during, you know, doing, you know, countless Zooms and, you know, you sort of start to lose a little bit of confidence in yourself and your purpose in life, I think. So I think that our, our patients are probably going to be more vulnerable um, yeah, than yeah, ever. Sure. And I think that, um, you know, we need to be prepared for that, you know, for people being extra sensitive, needing that extra bit of support and handholding, yes. as you said, feeling safe, feeling like there's proper processes in place, and then just dealing with people's probably heightened insecurities and, and, and sort of stresses and things that ordinarily would be a five out of 10 stress now is an eight or a nine out of 10 mm-hmm. stress. So I think that we're going to have our work cut out for us. And um, there's a few other things that Jake wanna, and I want to ask you about that, for, you know, as we get on uh, during the chat. But yeah, great point that you raised. Well, it's interesting. I wanted to look at the other side of the coin where, and I think we all agree as aesthetic sort of practitioners or clinic owners, there is... Also, the argument there's a bit of COVID apathy. People are over it. They yeah. they just want to get on with their life, and you know, our aesthetic patients they're desperate for their treatments. And I do worry that there might be a bit of a casual approach from our patients who just 
want it and 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 how it's done isn't so important to them as as us practitioners it's very important safety is our paramount sort of thing but our patients often don't really understand the nuances of of how that works in practice so do have you noticed that as well I suspect that it will vary from state to state, uh, Jake. For example, I suspect in Queensland where uh, they haven't really been touched as severely as we have in New South Wales, uh, the attitudes will be slightly different. What I've noticed is that it's not so much apathy, but more the natural complacency that comes with the fact that we almost dodged a bullet first time round. And when talking to clients and colleagues after the first lockdown, people were very grateful. We were all very grateful to be living the life that we do in Australia the way that we're doing it. And although things are much worse now, we're in a way in a better position when, say, Europe and the UK were through their worst because we have a solution. We have a vaccine, which we know are safe and effective. So in a way, uh, there is a degree of optimism that's going to come out of this darker time um, that I think will empower people to just be a little bit more confident in stepping forwards. Um, so I don't, I, I haven't really detected so much apathy, but I think the complacency that we had in the earlier part of the year will certainly probably not be there. I think people will be more cautious, um, but I think uh, also realistic about what we're going to be able to do and how to do it, especially in, in say, Victoria and New South Wales. Yeah. I'm curious to know, uh, and I'll ask you separately, maybe we'll start with Nick this time. Was there any sort of worry within, you know, the larger chain clinic, which is Silk, that things might not be able to go back to normal? Did did you ever consider that we won't have a normal sort of life anymore? We won't be able to do certain treatments? Was that ever on the table or not really? No, I don't think so. Because at the end of the day, like, you know, life has to go back to you know, some semi-normality, doesn't it? And it's all heightened at the moment with just think like the uncertainty of when we're going to open up and what we're going to do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think it's just going to be a mixed bag, isn't it? Some patients will be very apprehensive. Others are just going to be chilled. Um, and it, it's on us, like the onus is on us as like, you know, the doctors at, that are taking the helm on this just to, have the confidence that the policies and the procedures that we put in are going to keep people safe, yeah. um, like Andrea said. So it will go back to some sort of normality and what that looks like. Nobody knows yet, but <laughs> no, I, th- I think, you know, we're, we want to get back and we're going to do a good job and get back to what we were doing before and what we all love. Yeah. Well, if you had a crystal ball, when when do you think New South Wales is going to open? I want to put your money on it. <laughs> <laughs> so many, well, many rumours, isn't there? Yes. I think it's, it's it's pretty clear that restrictions will not be eased until we reach 70% uh, fully vaccinated population, eligible population. Uh, as of this morning, 42% are at that level and 75% have had their first dose. There doesn't seem to be any attrition in the take-up of the vaccine. So that gives me some encouragement that the prediction of mid-October or so is is accurate. Um, but this is a, an ever-evolving beast. And so if things remain as positive as they are from the point of view of vaccination now, it will certainly encourage uh, the uh, health department to allow us to come out of this lockdown in a gradual manner from around the middle of October, give or take. I don't think that's unrealistic. 
Yeah. Yeah. And what have you guys been doing in the interim in terms of, you know, staying in contact with, with your injectable teams and trying to provide training and, and sort of ongoing development? Because I would imagine, I'm not an injector, but, you know, I'm, I'm an artist to a certain extent. So I know that you sort of got a lot of fine, fine motor skills and, and sort of things that you get used to just through the process of repetition and, you know, mastery of a certain craft. So do, do you sort of worry you know, there might be a bit of a drop-off in, I guess, the, the the level of skill or how sort of on point people are after such a hiatus? And if so, how are you sort of combating that? Yeah, that's look, that's a really good question. I think for us, training and education is absolutely key. And uh, we've really taken advantage of this downtime to contribute towards the upskilling and maintaining of at least the theoretical knowledge. We can't do hands-on training in the lockdown states, of course. Uh, but we've got a a whole group of people whose job is to be part of the clinical education and training uh, program inside of uh, the business. And so we've managed to be able to communicate through journal clubs, through case presentations. Uh, We've got a lot of positive relationships with our collaborators and partners in the industry. So we brought together Q&A sessions with uh, key partners that have we have come up through discussion with our, our, our team members and also masterclasses and, and live webinars with a lot of our collaborators in order to um, really maintain the momentum and maintain the enthusiasm, maintain the knowledge and upskill so that when we go back, uh, we know that our team members will be sharp and focused and at their best. Yeah. What about from the Silk perspective, Nick? Yeah, same. So, the silkies, as they like to be known. Silkies. <laughs> silkies. Have you heard this before? No. The, well, I didn't know that until I joined, <laughs> but they're called the Silkies. They have a, a face, Facebook group, which I'm a part of, and, and you can see that they're, they're all kind of asking each other's questions. And, you know, they're very all, like, intermingled and, and connected. And we've been having at least one webinar a week from, you know, the big companies like Tioxan, um, Allegan, and, you know, this, you know, you're never going to have the same as face-to-face learning, really. But to keep them engaged, certainly for the ones that are in, in lockdown, it's been great. So they've had lots of education from all over the world, really, in the different webinars. And there's been a great feedback from that. So, yeah, just keep, just keeping engaged, keeping in contact. And, yeah, just trying to do as much as possible. I'm curious, um, obviously we're Zooming right now and Dave and I have learned a lot about what works and, and sometimes what doesn't work. What, what have you found useful and, and less useful sort of teaching remotely? Is there any particularly good examples, Andreas, where you, know, you felt like, I don't know, maybe anatomy works better than technique, for example, when you're doing a webinar? Yeah, I think, look, it's 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 something positive that we will take away from this pandemic because at the end of the day, the whole concept of webinars and Zoom were really a very small part of how we used to do things before. But I think they do have a place and particularly useful when you have a large group of people that are not co-located. So in an organization that's spread throughout Australia, it's great for me to be able to run a session that everybody can be present at from their location. That's absolutely key. And so there are certain things that lend themselves particularly well. So the basic principles, anatomy, uh, a lot of the theory can be done not just in a physical co-located space, but but over Zoom. It's great to be able to have quizzes that have animations and all sorts of other components to them that make it a bit more interesting, more interactive. It's great for a question and answer session. It's 
great for journal clubs. It's great for discussing interesting cases and, and doing case reports. So I think it certainly has its place. And moving forwards, even as we open up, I suspect it will maintain an element of our uh, teaching education program. Yeah. And, and Nick, you've also taught with Geoxane as well as with Silk. A- any sort of takeaway points that you, you think have worked really well or, or even not so well with Zoom? Um, like there's a couple of standout webinars, definitely. Um, you know, Dr. Seto and Dr. Lee Walker, they, they, great, they gave some great anatomy. And the, so there was a really good anatomy lecture and then also a great complications one. Yes. And when they are you know, when they're up on screen, they're very visual. So they've got lots of slides. And I think obviously visual is something that gets a really good feedback. And I feel that um, people take a lot more from that. Yeah. So that, so they, they, they were two that were great. But yeah, I think um, overall the content has been pretty good so far. And I've not really felt any, any negatives from it. Yeah. I think the one takeaway that I'm guessing we'll all agree with last time in, in the first lockdown, there was just this overwhelm of Zooms and Instagram lives and it was just too much. I couldn't keep up with it. I felt exhausted and everyone was like everyone was doing it. Whereas now it seems to be more spaced out and a bit more appropriate. I actually You've got to find the balance. Yeah, I was going to say I, I limit myself to one, maybe two a week. Because yeah. <laughs> otherwise, yeah, because otherwise, I feel that yeah, you do get a bit of fatigue from it. Yeah, I feel we, even David and I with the podcast when we have our own sort of weekly Zoom chat and you know we meet up with uh, Marla, our producer and stuff. We've we've learned that it's appropriate once a week, but sometimes a phone call or an email is way better to communicate a point. But there are a lot of companies who are just using Zoom all the time and it just becomes unnecessary and frustrating. So yeah, that would be my takeaway. Yeah. It's almost like um, we're compensating with over-communication sometimes. Um, You know, people, people, I don't know, it feels like we're just, we're being bombarded with so much information all the time. We've got the, you know, the daily Gladys update with what's going on and when we're coming out of lockdown and how many people are in hospital and how many percentage, what percentage we're at to in terms of vaccines. I think that, you know, people are sort of reaching a saturation point in in some respects with just being bombarded with so much information. But um, something that did raise quite a lot of issues um, last lockdown, and I, I think this was universal across um, you know, probably all products and, and companies and ranges in the country, which was um, patients coming back in after the extended lockdown, sort of advising that their treatment had worn off or their, their Botox didn't work or, or so on. And it caused untold number of, you know, complaints, you know, some, you know, some sort of fairly confrontational experiences for some injectors out there. Do you anticipate the same sort of thing happening this time? And, and if so, you know, what have you guys got in store to try and try and I wouldn't combat's probably too strong of a word because it sort of infers, you know, something negative but in terms of like how to deal with this in, in a positive way. Yeah, look, I don't, I, in my experience from our clinics, we haven't really found that that was a significant issue. Um, I think there were certainly concerns of how do I pick up in the program that we've set forward? So if we have a, a year-long program of treatment, which is interrupted, I, I think we basically took the first few appointments after lockdown as an opportunity to recalibrate uh, the treatment plan, to recalibrate where we are, to see if anything has changed, to modify anything that we need to modify and reassure the client that they're back on track. I think the vast majority of our clients uh, really wanted some reassurance that uh, we are able to pick up where we left before, make any necessary adjustments and move forward in a positive way. 
Um, and I, I suspect that the same will be this time, maybe even more because it's been a far longer period of downtime. So from my point of view, we need to check that nothing has changed in their personal medical uh, background to make sure that what we have in front of us is the same client from four months ago and to recalibrate as needed and reassure them that we're able to move forwards uh, in, in, a, in a controlled and safe manner and hold yeah. their hand through this process. Well, what was your experience, Nick? Because you look after a lot I, of nurse injectors. I was just going to say, I think the, probably the issue was so we're probably going to be four months at least in lockdown. So any toxin that they had is completely gone. I think the, probably the issue would maybe come after we've treated all those patients and it starts to wear off a little bit sooner. You know, so maybe three months into it, I think that may be where we get an issue. But it's just one of these things, isn't it? It's, it's, there's not much you can do about that. And the last time, anecdotally, certainly from my experience, I didn't, I didn't really find that I got people complaining about that. Mm. No, I, I didn't either. I know um, Tim I heard Pitts. from the UK that, the, that there was a lot of that going on. But yeah, yeah. massive lockdown, though. Yeah, Tim they Pierce, were, he did a, a great study where he literally got people to report back, you know, what, what brand are you using? Is it Xeomin or, you know, Galderma brand, whatever. And he basically found no difference between the brands and the, sort of the interpretation of it was it's multifactorial. Some patients are just stressed and anxious and have got this whole Zoom sort of face phenomenon going on where they're much more heightenedly aware of what they look like. Yeah, absolutely. And then there was just the fact they haven't had a treatment in four or five months and maybe they were slightly underdosed previously and and so on and so on. So I, I don't know. I think the upshot was that no one has found an answer to it, but people were definitely complaining about it. Yeah, so yeah, not much you can do anyway, really, is there? No. What, no. What's your clinic stance going to be on vaccinations? And you know, Andreas, you mentioned it, filler and thread. What What is your policy going to be moving forwards? So look, we will always be guided by the Department of Health advice, and uh, that will be really fundamental to our um, uh, decision making from that point of view. Uh, from the point of view of uh, so I meant with the interaction of potential, yeah. You know, yeah so the. Australasian College of uh, Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons and um, Cosmetic Dermatologists put together a set of recommendations some time ago now, which were based on what the Royal College of Surgeons of England were doing and uh, evidence that was put together for the Mayo Clinic. So good quality evidence and advice. Uh, and the two-week wait on either side of filler based on those three case reports from uh, uh, the Moderna uh, issues, uh, I, I think is reasonable. Um, and from the point of view of the threads, we were advised by our uh, suppliers that they would also recommend that. And it makes a lot of sense to me. So the important thing is to communicate this uh, to our clients, explain to them what we're doing and why, and work with them to make sure that the timing is right. Mm. Not to put you on the spot, Nick, I'm happy to explain it, but did you want to explain to the listeners who maybe aren't aware of the, the potential sort of issue of vaccines and fillers and threads, or do you want me to do it? I'll let you, I'll let you go, but I was just going to say that the the that's exactly the same policy that we've got in place, Andrea. Mm -hmm and we had we've had that for quite a few months yeah. now yeah um yeah i think two weeks is more than safe and then nothing for toxins mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. if you're listening and wondering sort of what we're alluding to basically there was a study quite a while ago now when some of the first vaccines were launched and moderna just happened to be the one in the study where a couple of literally two patients out of i think it was eighteen thousand 
came back saying, you know, the filler where I think I had filler has now become a little bit tender and swollen. And it was a transient effect. And the question was, well, well why is that? And, we, you know, we know as injectors, this isn't a new phenomenon. We know that if you you know, become a bit sick or there's a bacterial infection or viral infection, your filler can get a bit swollen and that's your body's immune system sort of reacting to anything. could be a dental infection or anything else. But I guess the point is that everyone is going to have a vaccine or, or, you know, many of us are going to have vaccines. So there's a sort of a potential risk that kind of new filler or old filler may in a, in a small or a tiny number of patients become a bit swollen and tender. So the guidelines, as Andrea said, were wait around two weeks before or after a vaccine. And that's going to be important because there's going to be this big rush for people wanting their treatment, but they're going to have to stagger it on, on their own vaccination sort of journey. I think the important thing is to really be very honest with our clients, explain very clearly and uh, in simple ways what is happening, why it's happening, reassure them that this isn't an infection, it's not an allergic reaction, it's simply an immunological response and uh, reassure them uh, appropriately and uh, and really explain things to them. I think messaging is really important and something that we've fallen short in, in, in several ways in this country from the point of view of, say, vaccine messaging. So I think getting the right information and educating and empowering the client is really important so that they feel that they're well looked after, they understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, and so they can be calm about it. Yeah. If it happens. What what's your protocol if you if you do sort of encounter this? What what do you generally tell your patients for delayed onset nodules or swelling, if you want to call it that? So first of all, obviously I've not had any cases of of anything to do with the vaccine. I don't know if you have. I mean um, anecdotally, it wasn't my patient, but I sort of helped manage one and, and it was a transient effect. No, nothing yeah. was needed, to be honest. From from the vaccine? You think it was from the vaccine? Yeah, well, it was just the timing. Who knows? We could, we can, yeah, it was likely the vaccine, but maybe they had a sort of an underlying sort of bacterial infection that didn't sort of fully develop. But yeah, probably the vaccine. I think in general is do nothing and mon- monitor it and watch and wait is, is probably... Well, certainly what I've done with in the past. Yeah. Um, and generally, I would say the vast majority of them will just settle with time and just holding the patient's hand because it can be really stressful. Yeah. I've, had a, I've had a few, certainly. Um, and I've, I've had, you know, we've treated them with steroids if it, if it is prolonged. But generally, if you just hold back and do nothing, yeah. then it normally just sorts itself out. Yeah. Is that your approach as well, Andreas? You just sort of watch and wait first? Look, I, I, I take it on a very individual basis because everyone is different and it really depends on the presentation. Uh, it depends if there's tenderness or not, if there's any hint of an infective as well as an inflammatory process, uh, how long ago the filler was, what amount it was, where it was. So I think uh, you have to have a strategy depending on uh, the specifics of the individual that you're dealing with rather than a sort of blanket approach. Um, and so we will have to take it as it comes. The good thing is that it's incredibly rare. And as you said, uh, Jake, it can happen to anybody who has a UTI to a filler that's been there for six or nine months. So um, I think we've got the strategies in place. We just need to uh, treat it on a case-to-case basis and really be very accurate about what we do for the right reasons. Yeah. Right. Well, I've got a face full of filler. I'm double vaxxed. I've had no problems. <laughs> Happy to report. <laughs> One of the things that um, you know my clinics definitely felt when we were open was just this this rush of patients trying to get in, you know, ASAP. And I know that sort of vaccines may delay some people, but it was almost like we couldn't keep up 
with the demand. And I'm sure there was there was business opportunities lost to um, other competitors um, who had more availability. And I guess with that in mind, I guess it's more of a business question. So you guys may or may not be able to answer this. But in terms of just your your workforce and your your um, your um, ability, Capacity, to, yeah. yeah, just to treat that number of patients. Have you guys sort of geared up in preparation for the onslaught of patients sort of wanting to sort of clamor in and, and get treatments as soon as possible? But look, for us, we've always had a very bespoke approach. Um, we're never going to rush a consultation. It's not a, a point-and-shoot service. Um, and I think we've built a very loyal uh, client base. Uh, and I think we always have the capacity to treat our clients, but we will do so appropriately and give ourselves the time necessary to do uh, the right treatments and the right consultation. So um, I, I think where there is demand, we will be able to absorb that, but we will do so in a safe and controlled manner. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think probably, well, certainly in my own clinic, not not speaking for self, we're, we're going to have to have extended hours probably just to <laughs> yeah. like for the pent up demand. We've got people phoning up every day saying like, when are you opening, when are you opening? So we've got a, a list that is just getting out of control. So certainly going to have extended hours. Um, we'll wait and see what what kind of advice from the government about vaccinations, et cetera. And I'm sure we'll get onto that hot topic. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 going to be a mad rush, but you know it's it'll be great to get back to work and yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's not just going to be number of patients. You're probably going to be doing, you know, larger volumes of, of filler potentially. People getting, I mean, I guess there's not so much difference um, with tox once you've got it open and everything drawn up. It doesn't take too much longer to do more units. But in terms of like more time with consultation, you know, more information that you're. Um, giving to patients. I don't know, Jake wanted to ask about, you know, rapid antigen testing, which I think we'll get to soon. You know, there's going to be a lot more involved now in sort of getting a patient through through the, through the um, through the process in your respective clinics. And, you know, as I said, that may include like larger scopes of treatments, people that want, you know, fillers all of a sudden that haven't had them before. So it's, you're probably going to see things blow out a little bit. I, I would anticipate as my business brain thinking, you know, you're probably going to see that sort of thing happening in the business as well. Firstly, from my experience, I've tried to communicate with my patients as best as possible. And to be honest, it hasn't worked as well as I'd liked because the, I feel like the landscape is constantly changing, particularly, you know, now we've got a bit of a goal. We know it's probably going to be mid, maybe late October, but, you know, three, four weeks ago, we didn't know that. Mm. And so every time you communicate with your patient base and say, hey, uh, we think it's going to be end of September and then suddenly it's not you know, you're emailing sort of 2000 people and then you're getting like 500 texts back and it just becomes a more confusing thing, even though you're trying to keep in contact with these people and give them good advice and, and sort of give them a something to hold on to. So from my perspective, it's just been a bit difficult trying to manage it's, that. It's probably easier not to book them at all just now yeah. and wait till we have a clear date. That's, well, that, that's essentially what we've we thought it was going to be two weeks. Yeah. And then four weeks and then we went put our hands up and we said no we're just gonna have to take the names when we know we're going to open up then we'll we'll be full and we'll contact all the patients yeah yeah hard and what, what are your patients saying are they contacting you saying do i have to be vaccinated or, or not has that not come up yet uh that i have had a couple of couple of conversations but the we don't know I mean, no one knows who, if they need to be vaccinated and I think it's going to be a really sticky situation. You know, like obviously as a doctor, we have to be vaccinated. But yeah. then do the clinics 
staff have to be vaccinated and yeah. do the patients have to be vaccinated because I can imagine that is going to open a can of worms with, you know, I, I'm very pro-choice. So I think you have the choice to have a vaccination, but it's kind of like all these people are getting their arms twisted to, to get a vaccine. Um, and I just think that when people are phoning up and the, and the reception staff have to ask them, are you vaccinated or not? That's going to be, it's going to be a really tricky situation for certainly yeah. for the front of house to to deal with. But I'm just hoping that New South Wales Health come and they make it plain as day. Mm. It's this way or it's that way, so that it takes the onus off of us. So we're not <laughs> we're not the bad guys. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Look, I think we need to wait and see what the advice will be. There will certainly be guidance. Uh, at the moment, the 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 sort of soft messaging is that uh, the most likely thing is that we will be required to have vaccinated staff in order to open our clinics. Now, that's just really from uh, reading between the lines, but that, that will be clarified, I'm sure, closer to the time for every industry. They have to do that. Um, whether or not they also require fully vaccinated clients, uh, that again, we will wait and see. I think the, the messaging certainly has been very difficult around uh, the vaccination program uh, in this country. And the most important thing that we can do is educate and inform both our clients and our team members so that they feel empowered to make the right decision. Mm. And although it's blatantly clear to me that these vaccines are safe and effective and it's a bit of a no-brainer and we really need to get vaccinated, it's as simple as that. I'm a scientist and a doctor, and so I can weigh up that and make that decision. And so from our point of view as an organisation, we're encouraging and supporting our staff to get vaccinated. Uh, and we're doing so by filling that void of information that is lacking and, and filling it with appropriate information and education. And the relationships that we build, not just with our team members, but also with our clients, allows us to have that conversation. And certainly in the run-up to the lockdown, I've had a lot of clients asking me, and that allows me to have that conversation and address their concerns, clarifying issues that they have, so that they've got the right information to make the right decision. So it would be nice that we don't have to mandate it, largely because people are just getting vaccinated because they realise it for themselves, that that's the right thing for them. Yeah, I really hope that we get some clear guidance specifically about our industry, because you know, of course, we, we should be pro-choice. You know, you can't force people to do anything, whether it's vaccines or anything else. But I guess the, the flip side of that argument is that if 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 your clinic suddenly becomes a hotspot or, or your three of your staff have to quarantine for, for 14 days because they're COVID positive, mm -hmm. that has an impact on, on everything yeah. because someone decided not to get a vaccine. The aspect of choice, you need to have the, the right information and because we did so well at the beginning of the year, the messaging was very slow, it was a bit confused, and therefore that void was filled in by fear, word of mouth, social media, misinformation, and that resulted in a degree of hesitancy. And so mm -hmm. we need to work to provide the correct information so that people have accurate and educated views so that they can make that decision and feel confident that they're doing the right thing. Yeah. Jake and I have had many, 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 many debates around the vaccine and back and forth. And I was saying to him the other day, I said, you know, like, I understand why people are hesitant. I understand there's been flip-flopping from yep. every world government. Um, you know, you've got questionable statements coming out of the World Health Organization, some weird stuff coming out of there. There's the whole, where did it come from? Then you've got social media. And it's just like, unless you are a doctor or a scientist, how on earth can the average person who's sitting at home you know, on, their, on their mobile device or watching their TV have any idea 
what's the truth? You're yeah. absolutely correct. It's impossible. That. I mean, even someone like myself who's close to the industry, I'm not a doctor, but I'd like to consider myself fairly well-read. I'm mm-hmm. finding it confusing. So how on earth could the, you know, the average person off the street be able to decipher the, yeah. f- the fact from the fiction? It's, it's almost impossible. And we've only got ourselves to blame. Yeah. We're overstimulating people with so much, so much um, you know, conflicting information. It, it's, yeah. You don't know what to do. And that's why I think my responsibility is absolutely clear on this. I want to be able to educate our team members and our clients appropriately, accurately, simply, so that they know what's what in a very clear and unambiguous way. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. I hope as well that the government sort of follows through and thinks through every step of this process because as a business owner, you know, one of the things that we struggled with was that they made the government made it so easy for people not to come back to work. You know, people could say, well, I can earn X amount of dollars from you per week, or I can earn a couple of hundred bucks less to sit at home and do nothing and sit on and sit on JobKeeper or JobSeeker. And it becomes a difficult proposition because, you know, you've got a business to run, you've got financial responsibilities, but then you've got the other side of the coin where it's, you know, it's very easy for people not to work anymore. And then it's almost like people have become, in, you know, indoctrinated into not having to go to work. And yeah. then it's, <laughs> you sort of, it becomes a really, really difficult situation, you know, and things aren't sort of thought through properly. You know, yeah. we've got this debacle at the moment with, you know, JobKeeper money going to companies that didn't deserve it and people in, in you know, important positions within the government refusing to answer very basic questions about this. It's, I just hope they, they think things through this time and, and they've got plenty of time to do it, I guess. But um, from a business owner's perspective, it's, it's, it's a little bit stressful. I think they'll be acutely aware of that. And I think that you're right. The guidance needs to be clear. Uh, and we are in a better position to expect that guidance. And actually, so are the authorities to yeah. provide that guidance. It was a little bit uh, difficult to navigate that sphere at the beginning. For example, New South Wales was the last jurisdiction to open in our group of clinics because it took a bit of take, it took an extra week or so to really clarify the position. Are we a healthcare facility? Are we not? Are we allowed to open? Are we not? So yeah. um, I, I think that the messaging should really be clearer, I suspect, and I hope that it will. Yeah. Well, that's been a contentious little issue as well that, you know, clinics that have sort of been opening up on the sly during <laughs> during this process, you know, trying to, you know, do treatments saying that they're medical or it's, I mean, you know, Jake can probably speak to this more than I can, but it's been, it's been disappointing from, from, it, from someone that's, uh, I guess, a stakeholder in this industry seeing this sort of conduct going on. Yeah. I, obviously, I'm not going to name any names, but of, of course it's been happening. Um, I've, I've, I've been sat on the fence as to, you know, of course, I believe our treatments are medical. They are medical. We're using prescribable drugs and so on. So, yes, there is a loophole to say that we're doing medical procedures and therefore we can be... Open, not essential, we're not Exactly. We're not essential. Um, yes, my patients value my treatments and they feel amazing. And, and sometimes I can improve confidence as well as looks and so forth. But at the end of the day, I can't risk someone dying or giving COVID to me or my family or our staff because they wanted their frown line softening. It just seems a bit ridiculous. Um, but yeah, uh, that's all I'm going to say on the matter because I get really angry. <laughs> yeah, understandably, you're absolutely right. There is, uh, there's no need for that at all. It's simply wrong and it shouldn't be happening. Simple as that. Yeah. Actually, one thing just that we were going to come onto it, but it's relevant to that conversation was... Um, there would potentially be clinics who are opening soon who are going to use rapid antigen tests, which are basically you know, a very quick test to sort of assess if someone is COVID positive or negative. Nick, as a GP, do you know anything about the tests? Have you used them? And, and what's their value? So, well, they're obviously, as, a, as the name suggests, so it's you 
have a nasal swab, you put it into a chemical solution, and, and within 15 to 20 minutes, you get a positive or, positive or negative COVID test. Mm. They use them a lot in the UK. So if, if a venue has more than, say, 5,000 people, then you, you would have to do a test before you go in and get a negative result. As far as I know, in Australia, they are using it on building sites and in schools. Yeah. However, it's not been rolled out massively and there's no chat abusing that in general practice that I know of. Um, as far as I'm aware, that's the only two places that they're using it at the moment. But I think they should bring them in. Mm. I think it's a great idea. It's, it, could, it could let a lot of people go back to work. Yeah, I, rem- I remember like when when this all kicked off, you know, March 2020, they were available, but they were quite notorious for being a little bit insensitive. Uh, their sensitivity and specificity wasn't wasn't great. So I'm assuming that they are kind of more reliable now, which is, you know, like you said, they're, they're being used. They're not, in- they're not like a PCR test, like a blood test, but, you know, they're, they're the next best thing. And if you can get a result in 15 minutes, that's... I couldn't. I couldn't tell you the exact accuracy, but you know, like it would enable so many people to go back to work. I think that they really should be pushing for this to be used more. Mm. But whether the whether we'll have to use them in the clinic or not, I, man, can you imagine that? <laughs> <laughs> well, the the TJ have uh, put out a, an interim uh, paper of recommendations last month, and we're waiting on a more formal uh, response. And uh, certainly the the regulations around how they are conducted are pretty strict and pretty rigid. And it would be very difficult to comply with those in the setting of our clinics. Mm. Um, The sensitivity and specificity certainly is operator dependent. So you need experience and training to be good at it. And you have to be a healthcare professional to, to actually. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So the TJ have put a lot of uh, regulations to ensure that it's done in a specific way. And a lot of them would be tricky to comply with in the setting of a relatively small clinic, for example. Mm-hmm. But the biggest issue is that what do you do with the information that you get? It's fine if you get a uh, somebody who's positive, but somebody who's negative, that doesn't necessarily give you the green light to say you're good to go. Because mm-hmm. they're particularly good if there are high viral loads, but not so good if there are low viral loads. They're specifically designed for those who are asymptomatic. Uh, and they do have a role, as you've uh, said, Nick, in a bigger setting. And the UK have done a lot of work from this, a lot of uh, publication from Liverpool that was used as a uh, as a test uh, area for uh, for research on this. Um, they do have an applicability. I think it's too early at the moment to know how useful they will really be. Because if somebody tests negative, that doesn't really tell you that you are you've got the green light and you're good to go. Um, and certainly the advice from the WHO is that you shouldn't base policy on a negative rapid antigen test. And, and there's always a risk to be taken. So uh, there's a, it's, a, it's a balance of risk versus necessity. Uh, and so if it will allow construction to go ahead and you accept that you will have a low level of sensitivity, and then fair enough, it, that, that may well be appropriate for that industry. It may well be applicable to ours in time, but certainly at the moment from what the TGA have put forward and what we know from other countries that have used this more extensively, uh, it's certainly at the embryonic stages. Uh, and a negative test does not give you a degree of confidence to say, yeah, you're good to go. Yeah, I, I guess that's also in the context of the expectation is, you know, builders or whoever have to be double vaccinated first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, they're going to be taking all the precautions and masks and et cetera. So, yeah. 
if someone does get sick or or, or or as there's a positive test and there's you know potentially an outbreak, hopefully the symptoms will be reduced. But you've captured those yes. true positives. Yeah, yeah. I think in time we will get better at rapid testing, and that it will be a much more widely used uh, modality. Is in conjunction with vaccination, in conjunction with masks, to try and reduce the infectivity. Yeah. I've actually got a question for all three of you. I'll start with David, actually. So obviously we know with Delta that, you know, it's much more transmissible and and social distancing is potentially more of a problem than last time when we were in a a lockdown. Have any of your clinics had to think about the, the patient flow differently? Oh, yeah. You're just going to do as best as you can because you're all in high flow busy clinics in in different chain clinics, obviously. Yeah. Well, look, you know, I was sort of, Andreas alluded to, you know, earlier in the chat, I think we became a lot slicker at, you know, getting people to check in, do temperature checks, you know, extra cleaning in the room. So I think we will be a lot better this time. But I guess, you know, I guess we're not going to really know until we open up the doors and and sort of start trading and, and sort of finding out where the challenges lie, where the, the sort of weaknesses in the in in the in the chain are. But at the moment, I think it's, you know, strictly adhering to what worked last time um, and just closely monitoring and seeing, you know, if we if we do have any issues and how we can improve things. But yeah, beyond that, um, it's tough, especially with the busier clinics. I mean, I'm not sure how busy Artisan is, but I know that, you know, Silk, you know, you guys are sort of similar sort of business model in some respects to, to sort of what we do at, at laser clinics. So, you know, high patient traffic, sort of quick turnaround, with, especially on the laser hair removal side of things, not so much on the injectables, but definitely on on the sort of the laser side of things. You, you, you know, you can have five, 10 minute appointments. You know, some clinics have got, you know, my clinic in Woden might see 100 patients in a day, you know, easily. Um, so there is, there are going to be challenges there for sure. And you may need, we may need to modify our practice, but it's hard to know until we are actually in there living it and, and sort of working out what's working. What do you guys think? Well, look, I think it just depends on the the model that you have. Uh, in Artisan, we're very much a bespoke and boutique uh, service. It, we're not the sort of clinic that you'll have a, a dozen or so people lined up in the waiting room. And I think part of what the appeal of Artisan and our point of difference is that clients do appreciate the confidentiality and the privacy of a, of a quiet uh, waiting room. So it's not really been an issue because our model is slightly different uh, to what mm. you've described. And I think we've adhered to the social distancing and maintained it throughout even when we had very little community transmission, simply because we want to be best in class and we want to be able to follow uh, what's been recommended thoroughly and fully. Um, but really, we we would never have a, a huge number of people in the, at any one time in the clinic. It's just not our model. It's a, it's a much more boutique enterprise. Uh, we keep our books full, but we do so in a slightly different way. Yeah. What about the silkies? I think... Well, the feedback that I get about the silk the silk clinics are that they were already pretty meticulous beforehand, um, and we'll we'll obviously go back to that. We'll be looking out for any you know policies and procedures that New South Wales Health or Health give out, and and taking guidance from them always. I guess it's just as you guys said, it's about keeping everybody as safe as possible and and comfortable and ticking all the boxes. You know, using the the, the correct masks, hand washing, reducing patient contact time as much as possible. I think it's hard. I don't think there's any right or wrong answers and, and we're going to have to learn somewhat as we go. Yeah. I might have been the odd one out. I, I quite liked the fact that we, we made it much more explicitly to the patients more medical. 
it, it, you know, everything became more visibly clean and we hammered home sterility and no makeup and all these sorts of things. So from that perspective, I, I think that the patients became, I don't want to use the word compliant, but they, 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 they were, they were sort of more understanding of what we were doing yeah. and obviously the precautions around COVID as well. Yeah. Certainly we found that our clients were very appreciative of the efforts that we had gone to. And they all pointed out that, you know, it's great to see that you're all wearing masks, that you're doing temperature checks and so on and so forth. I think it's important to uh, empower our clients to feel confident that we are definitely prioritizing their safety and well-being as well as that of our team. Yeah. 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 In some ways it's sort of recalibrated people's understanding of what mm-hmm. it is that, that we do, you know, because, you know, as Jake sort of said, you know, I think that, um, Definitely the general public um, or the people that are coming into many of our clinics, I think many of them don't sometimes lose sight of the fact this is still a medical procedure. So I think that, you know, mm-hmm. going through all of these extra um, processes and, and sort of, you know, making it a lot more official in some respects has sort of recalibrated people's understanding yeah. of what it is, that what, what you do. But look, to your point, I think it's it. Uh, the public has now a far more acute realisation of what we would be doing as a medically-led set of clinics as standard, i.e. wearing masks, having meticulous infection control. I think the great public are now far better at hand hygiene. So we will find in the future there will be less coughs and colds, there will be less flu, there will be less COVID because people are now just getting routinely used to doing things that we as medics would be doing as standard, which is hand hygiene, you know, something as simple as that. So I think, again, that'll be a silver lining to take away from this. Yeah. I don't know if any of you have sort of um, had in-house conversations with your chains about your non-medical staff, like your beauty therapists and your skin therapists. Do you think that they'll presumably have to be mandatory vaccinated or is that not really discussed yet? I think they would be encouraged Right. And, and pointed in the right direction but again it's it's we're not sure we're not sure yeah. whether that'll be mandated or not yeah i suspect that it will depend on the type of facility so for example our clinics which are very medically uh, orientated very medically run uh it would make sense to include our dermal therapists in that because they're exposed to the same risk and vice versa so i may see a client uh, for injectables and two weeks later they'll see our dermal therapist for some laser treatment it's the same client in the same environment seeing very similar people so i think in our setting i suspect that it would be relevant and as i said before we're encouraging uh, our staff to become vaccinated and providing them with information to make that choice but uh, whether or not that legislation passes on to other levels of industry like a beautician or a nail salon for example is a different business but i suspect that in the remit of a clinically led and medically led uh, environment um, there isn't a huge amount of difference between a nurse and a dermal therapist that are seeing the same client. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an intimate treatment. You could be inches away from a face, you're breathing on each other, you might be using a laser and creating a plume of smoke into the air and so forth. So I, I can't see the difference from a, you know, a logistical angle, but it's yeah, just... I agree with you, Jake. I agree. Yeah, but I guess healthcare workers, we, we are mandated. We have to do it. Yeah. So, mm. yeah. Just a tricky one. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I guess um, maybe leaving leaving COVID here, unless you had any other questions on COVID, Jake, that you wanted to go. No, just, a, just a couple, I guess, business questions just to sort of satisfy some of my curiosities. Um, you know, I guess to each of you, you know, where, where do you sort of see the industry um, going sort of within the next six to, six to 12 months as we sort of emerge from COVID and sort of, as you said, get back to some sort of reality? Where do you, where do you think 
you know, industry sort of moving towards and, you know, what patients are wanting and sort of trends and, you know, what I guess your clinics, you know, each of your clinics respectively is sort of, you know, got planned for the sort of next 12 months or so. I think it's it's definitely going to be super busy as we t- touched on before. But are you talking more about like specific treatments? Yeah, just I guess the treatment trends, you know, growth. Um, you know, I guess, you know, one of the questions I had was, you know, this this challenge that I think all of us are having at the moment is, you know, making sure we've got enough cosmetic injectors to sort of satisfy, you know, the growth of, of your respective chain clinics and, and sort of um, making sure that we've got enough people involved in our organization, the right people involved in our organization. Cause I, you know, I've sort of said in many other podcasts, I think that, you know, the whole evolution of, of telehealth is, um, and people like fresh clinics and Insta scripts and so on, making it quite, quite, it wouldn't say easy, but less barriers to entry in terms of people being able to go out and start their own businesses. So I guess part of my question could be extended to, you know, retention, recruitment, um, strategies to sort of allow you to have enough of the good people in your business to grow. Yeah, I think like what happened with the last lockdown, there'll be a lot of people that are, you know, patients that are, you know, I've been thinking about cosmetic treatments and certainly from all the messages that I get, like from my personal Instagram and Facebook and marketing, et cetera, that has definitely peaked over over COVID because there's loads of people that are just sitting at home and they're, they maybe not put their toe in the water yet, but when this opens up, then I reckon a lot of people, first timers are going to come through. Like I definitely experienced that the last time. I'm not sure whether you guys did. A lot of people coming in saying, oh, I've been really thinking about this for a while. And then they've been sitting at home looking at injectors, looking at procedures, and then they're going to they're gonna dip their toe in the water, I reckon. I think in a way, Jake touched on it earlier on when he said that people are, are looking at themselves on the camera, yeah. on Zoom. And they have a, a far more acute appreciation of the facial aesthetics. And for the first time, we know what we look like when we talk to people. If you're around a boardroom, if you're sitting opposite someone, you have no idea what you look at. But if you spend all day, every day in Zoom or Teams meetings, you've, you've got your, your picture in the top right-hand corner and you can see yourself very acutely. And so I think the the notion of, of aesthetics, the notion of, of subtle differences, of asymmetry has now become far more in the minds of of the of, of the population because you for the first time you've got a really close appreciation of your facial aesthetics in a way that you haven't seen it before and so that i think has fueled a uh, an increase in demand for sure uh, from the point of view of meeting that demand certainly from our sense point of view uh, training and education are absolutely essential. We want to have the best in-class injectors, no doubt about that. And we invest a lot of time and effort in ensuring that we have safe, capable injectors who are not only experts on consulting, but also uh, top of the class when it comes to injecting and doing the right thing. So I think if we're going to, as we expand, we do so cautiously and carefully with a model that allows us to expand safely and appropriately. Do you think the one probably quite big difference between opening up from this lockdown and last year is that the international travel is now very, uh, well, dangling very close, maybe December, maybe even November, depending on what happens. And let's assume that all the states are the same. I know there's differences within the states. Do you think that that's going to affect people's you know, buying power, basically? Because I know that a lot of patients basically said to me, and plastic surgeons also became very busy, people who had money in their pocket, they couldn't go on, you know, their European holiday. And they said, screw it, I'm going to do my facelift this year. I've been thinking about it. Yes. And now I've got the money. Whereas 
that dynamic might be slightly different this time, and it's precariously close to our opening time as clinics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it just depends on uh, on how the the rules and regulations will fall, and whether or not it's quarantine free travel, and how confident people are feeling in traveling. I suspect that in time we will recalibrate back to the peaks and troughs that we would see as people were traveling abroad, you know, in the traditional periods of visiting Europe, for example. So we had busier months and quieter months, and they were reflective of school holidays and our clients traveling abroad. And, you know, I would take the opportunity to do the same, and I would travel when it's relatively quiet in the clinics. Um, So I suspect that there will be a cautious reintroduction of that. I I suspect that there will be some concern of, of international travel as it has a slightly higher risk profile. But I suspect that people will eventually go back to uh, the, the traveling patterns that happened before, and we will see those peaks and troughs that we were used to, and we will manage our, uh, our clinics and our flow uh, appropriately. Yeah. Well, we're probably going to see people coming here too. I mean, if we're able to leave the country after, you know, one would imagine that people are coming here too. So tourists and, you know, um, holiday makers over here and people that are coming over for a hiatus, whether it be, you know, a six months of comment for work or something. So I think we'll, we'll see people coming into the country as well that'll probably undergoing treatments. And hopefully if you've got that, that uh, two way in and out uh, policy, then you'll see an uptake of sort of, you know, visitors wanting to have treatments as well, potentially. Yeah, true. So if you're listening and you're, you're going to end up in Balmain or the central coast of Sydney, we've got two great injectors here to see. So feel free to book in in advance. <laughs> um, what do you feel about in your clinics from, you know, we've, we've talked about a lot on the podcast about this sort of pressure to be cheap or, or to give your patients even more value? Like, I know that your clinics are quite different and, and different models, but do you, do you feel any pressure from, from your patients sort of price comparing and, and so on or not really? Not really. I think our, our clients uh, trust us to do the right thing. And uh, for me, as the medical director, I, I, I want to feel comfortable that we're doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons and using the best possible uh, material and the best possible techniques and the best possible devices. So um, that's what I would expect for me. And that's what I would expect for my loved ones. So that's what I want to provide for my clients. It's really important that we do the right thing and educate the clients why we're choosing that particular product, this particular device, this particular series of procedures, that plan that we've put in place. I think, as I said before, it's really about building relationships and building a degree of confidence and trust so that we go on a journey to empower our clients to feel better as well as look better. Yeah. How about yourself, Nick? Do Do you see that pressure with your nurse injectors? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think our clinics are definitely different to artisan, more on the more like LCA, and I think that they are fairly priced. Uh, but I also think that the nurses are well trained and really good injectors. Um, and I think you know it's it's a different market, you know, definitely. But I think that the patients get really good value. Yeah, definitely from our from our nurses. Yeah. Well, I get, you know, there's different models to suit different demographics, people with, you know, more disposable income and some, and some with less. I think it's important that no matter whether you walk into an LCA or an artisan or a silk clinic, that there is a, a bare minimum that you would expect in terms of safety, good clinical outcome, you know, good general overall experience. I think there does need to be a baseline. It, it, you know, from someone that's working within the industry, it does concern me that there is this constant price, you know, this race to the bottom, which is, you know, never leads to good things. So I, I do hope that we do see 
some sort of, you know, calibrate recalibration of sort of how we view the treatments that we are providing. Because as you said, I mean, you know, the highly trained um, nurses and doctors providing it, you know, patients are putting their, their trust in us and our businesses. So I do hope that we start to take, um, you know, put more value in what it is that we're providing as an industry and, and sort of stop that trend of the cheapening of what we do. At the end of the day as well, it's good for it to be accessible, you know, yeah. like to be accessible for everyone. And that's what we that's what we provide. Yeah. With amazingly trained nurses. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, gentlemen, we have taken up too much of your valuable lockdown time. We appreciate <laughs> you turning up at short notice. Um, yeah. we'll put your um contact details at the bottom of the podcast description so people can contact you individually. Is there anything, any sort of parting comments that you wanted to sort of tell our listeners? No, just um, thanks for having us on. Love what you guys do. Keep churning out the content. Thank you, Nick. Well, look, it's, a, it's been an important conversation. Uh, I think we just need to stay true to what, as an industry, should be a, a basic standard, which is really safety, safety, safety. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully we, we can all meet up and have a beer and, and laugh about COVID at, at some point. Yeah. I look forward to that. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Jake and I are always looking for ways to make the podcast bigger and better. So we have put together our first ever survey and we would like as many of you to take part as possible. The results of this survey will help make the podcast more relevant to you. So please take a few moments to provide us with your feedback. To complete the survey, simply go to our Instagram profile and click on the link in our bio and the survey link is in there. 